Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season 2 provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I'm privileged to be speaking with Dr. Benita Simpson. She is a neurosurgeon, a graduate of Georgetown University School of Medicine and Baylor Neurosurgery Residency Program, and she currently practices in Virginia. Dr. Simpson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. So uh, tell us, what's a typical day like for you as a neurosurgeon? Well, it depends on what day of the week it is. Maybe two to three days a week I have OR and two to three days of the week I have clinic. My clinic consists of usually I like to start mine later, probably around 830 because I deserve to sleep in at this point in my life. <laughs> and, you know, I see my post-op patients, I see pre-op patients, and I see uh, people that potentially need surgery and go over there. MRIs or x-rays or CAT scans with them and, you know, stuff with them, why they may or may not need surgery. And then my OR days usually start at uh, about 7 o'clock, and it just really depends on the case, um, how late I'll be there, whether it's a brain case or a spine case, you never know. And what type of procedures do you do most commonly? Um, well, my practice now, I deal with a lot of active duty, so a lot, majority of my practice is elective spine. So taking care of degenerative disc disease, uh, cervical kyphosis, lumbar spondylolisthesis, um, do a ton of elective spine. Occasionally, we get our brain tumors. I have one coming up next week. I do love brain tumors as well. I mean, that's why I became a neurosurgeon, because I like the brain and the spine, so I still like to do cranial as well, as well as fine. And so uh, going back, taking us back a little bit, um, at what point did you decide to go into medicine or even become a neurosurgeon? Uh, well, I always knew I was going to be a doctor since I was like seven years old. I had surgery myself and I was like so amazed by everything that happened to me during the surgery, all the bells and whistles. And I was touching everything, asking a ton of questions, and I knew then I wanted to do surgery. But mm. neurosurgery came to me uh, during my third year of medical school. I initially wanted to go into orthopedic surgery, and I did like all my research in ortho because I have a sports medicine background, physical therapy and sports medicine. So all of my exposure prior to medicine was with orthopedic surgeons and with athletes and with sports. So, I, you know, clearly sports was, you know, the way I was going to go. And, you know, my first day on the orthopedics rotation, the chairman kicked my chair in order for me to ask me a question. I was like, oh, 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 <laughs> no, we can't, we can't do that. Like, if, this, if this is how y'all roll out, we'll not be a part. And it just didn't fit me. It was just an all-boys club and, you know, I'm a black girl and, you know, I just didn't fit the mold. Not to say that, you know, my black female lady pods aren't getting it done because they definitely are, but it just didn't fit me. I saw deep brain stimulation performed by a neurosurgeon at Georgetown and it's 
a type of procedure where we place electrodes um, in the brain and cause these uh, lesions to stop movement disorders. From then on, I was just amazed at like how those surgeries can really change people's lives. And we do that for Parkinson's disease and uh, movement disorders like hemiballista. And so that's what turned my head to neurosurgery. And then I rotated on there and I fell in love as soon as I saw the brain, my first cranial procedure, and I saw the brain beating like a heart, I was Hmm. in love. And so it was on since then. And let my mother tell it. She always knew, (laughs) but she did. She had went around telling everybody that I was going to be a neurosurgeon when I was, you know, trying for ortho. She was like, my baby's going to be a brain surgeon. The next Ben Carson, I was like, Mom, can you stop lying to people? I don't even know what a brain surgeon does. Like, my baby's going to be Ben Carson. So when I had decided on neurosurgery, um, I called my mom up that day after I left the operating room when I was a third year medical student. I was like, Mom, you were right. I don't know where you got that from, but you were right. I want to be a neurosurgeon. And so it was ordained from her, and then it was ordained from all of my experiences at Georgetown that led me to it. Wow. And and before Georgetown, you went to Florida State University for undergrad? Yes. What were you doing there to prepare yourself uh, to apply to medical school? So I joined this uh, program called Minority Association of Pre-Health Students, and that group um, really kind of gave me a platform for learning, you know, how to study, having a study group, learning about how to take the impact and things like that. So actually, you know, one of the guys that I met in there, Bernard Ashby, he was in math at Florida (laughs) State with me. That's where I met him. So it was that group that, you know, kept me on the straight and narrow path, the MAPS program at Florida State. And then after Florida State, I did a postback program at Georgetown called the GEMS program, Mm -hmm. and I really credit the GEMS program to changing everything about my academic pathway from then on, because if it wasn't for the GEMS program at Georgetown and Dean Taylor uh, guiding us, I I wouldn't be the position I am. That one year uh, changed how I thought clinically, how I thought as a scientist, all of my critical thinking skills. I became a better test taker and a better thinker because of that program. And so I give back to that program by serving on the admissions board because really I would not be here without that program. Wow. That is is so awesome. So that was a full year, that GEMS program? Yes. And and then after that, you uh, matriculated to Georgetown? Yeah, the GEMS program was at Georgetown and you take med school classes, but you don't take a full course load, and then the next year you matriculate. Gotcha. So then you were at Georgetown, you were exposed to neurosurgery, and you realized that's what you wanted to do. How did you position yourself to match into this incredibly competitive specialty? Well, I did well in honors high pass all my classes at Georgetown from the beginning, uh, because we didn't have a choice, <laughs> but being a gym, you, you had to. Uh, so I, I, I always did well um, with my first and second years, and I did well with the step exam. 
I did research, but my research was in ortho, actually. So I didn't have a ton of neurosurgery research when I was applying for the MAT. And um, that wouldn't fly this day. Like, if you were applying now, when I counsel students now, I tell them, you know, these kids are coming with 10, 15 uh, pages, 10, 15 articles that they published or, you know, not for, not necessarily first or second author, but they got them publications. So it's very competitive, um, even more so competitive now. So definitely I recommend publishing early, <laughs> like getting started early. If you know you want to do neurosurgery, you need to get with um, your department early and, and, and get started publishing. I didn't actually match the first time around, surprise, surprise, but I did uh, a, a sub-internship, I'm sorry, at Columbia when mm-hmm. I was applying for medical school, well, applying for the MET. And then um, that was my number one choice, actually, was the MET at Columbia. But, you know, I knew I wasn't uh, competitive enough to MET at Columbia, but it was still a great experience. And usually they take People that have done one of their um, fellowships there, they do these research fellowships or one of their own medical students. But I wanted to go there anyway because of the experience and um, to meet some of the attendings there that I had read so much about, read their articles. And the program director there really took to me and helped me and um, actually helped me met the second time around because he assisted me in getting the uh, the prelim spot there for general surgery. So I ended up at my number one choice, which was Columbia, <laughs> but in another specialty. So um, I spent that year at Columbia. It was it was great. It was a year to grow, and then I matched the second time around. So how was neurosurgery residency? Was it as bad as they say? Worse, better? Oh, oh, it's hard. It, it's what is. It's name hyped it up to be. Um, <laughs> it's working greater than a hundred hours per week. The, the first couple of years are the hardest. And if you know, I tell my mentees that if at some point you don't want to quit or you don't think, why am I doing this? I could have been a radiologist, or in my case, why am I doing this? I could have been on Real Housewives of Atlanta, <laughs> somebody's basketball or football wife, why am I doing If you don't question why you're doing this at some point, you're not working hard enough. It's that hard that you should question yourself, why am I doing this? You're not working hard enough then. Or your program is not hard enough. There's no way. You don't question at some point during the first three years, why am I doing this? And I tell them that is normal. That is completely normal. Uh, Neurosurgery has a 20% rate of people not making it through either they quit or they get fired wow um but it gets better um closer to the fourth year you know it's you know less cut more operating and you feel like you um are making a difference and progressing towards your goal of becoming an independent neurosurgeon and the hours required get shorter the responsibilities come deeper uh, once you um, continue up in years, uh, in the fifth, sixth, and seventh years. Um, 
a ton of responsibility. Um, it's like in the chief year of neurosurgery, it's like you raising your children because at, at Baylor, it was three to a class, but that's actually a very big program for neurosurgery. Some neurosurgery huh. classes only have one person. So wow. Baylor was three and now it's four. So you got three years times seven. So I got about 20 kids I'm trying to take care of and listen to those 20 kids complain and <laughs> um, trying to keep them from fighting each other and fighting the attendings. But then everything is your fault um, because you're the chief. Rightfully so. It's your fault because, you know, it's your responsibility to teach your juniors. It's your responsibility to have the service uh, functioning the way it should. It's on you and rightfully so. So a lot of people say at the end of training or their first year as an attending or a couple of years down, like, oh, it wasn't worth it all that time. But I, I completely agree. It's completely worth all of it because I love my job and I love doing what I do every day. It makes me happy every day. And um, even in clinic, you know, makes me happy. I know a lot of surgeons don't like clinic, but I love my clinic because I get to see my work in. I love seeing my patients do well and, you know, progress. So it's a good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you that don't know, Dr. Simpson and I are actually coworkers. So sometimes I get to share her operating room. Uh, She does have the best playlist out of any surgeon that I work with. Yeah, it goes down. So this year you were voted uh, with the North American Spine Society to be one of their top 20 under 40 uh, spine surgeon. So congratulations to that. Thank you. Uh, being a woman, especially a black woman in this field, because you were the first black uh, female to graduate from the Baylor uh, neurosurgery residency program. How has that affected your career? Well, um, you know, before I got to Baylor, outside of the PD at, at Columbia, who, um, you know, looked out for me, it was, because I, I started my, um, residency program somewhere else before I got to Baylor. And it's a difference when someone is not invested in you or or invested in your career personally and professionally and want to see you succeed and just want to see you do better. Um, I didn't have that um, in undergrad. I didn't have that in high school. Um, at Georgetown, I had... Um, I had that someone at Georgetown, um, but someone that just really become invested on in you in, in every which way makes a real difference in um, your career and, and how you succeed. And I had that at Baylor. Uh, they were invested in me and um, seeing me do better and not let me settle for being average or not let me settle for being, you know, mediocre in presentations or, you know, in the operating room, in each way they called me out and and said, you can do better, step it up, you can do better, and always, you know, striving to be better. And being in a program with so many smart and talented individuals, I mean, my co-residents were amazing and they're doing some amazing things and they're brilliant. And being in an environment like that really makes you um, step your game up and, and want to succeed and want to be better for yourself and for your patients. Um, 
it really makes a difference. And, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to go into ortho because I couldn't see myself doing that. And at Georgetown, it was an all-white, all-male boys club. Mm-hmm. And it's hard when they don't see themselves in you. And, you know, they you're never going to be their first choice, you know, as far as matching and stuff, because they don't see themselves in you at all. They don't see how they can relate to you, and they don't feel as invested in you. And I, I, I definitely felt that. Um, but I had a different time at, at Baylor, and we also had female faculty, too, who were able to guide me and mentor me, some amazing women at MD Anderson and um, at Texas Children, who um, I was able to look up to and, and look out for, for mentorship. That's awesome. I'm sure that uh, their input was invaluable to your, your time and training. Um, on the other side, like you already touched on, you love your job. How is neurosurgery as an attending? Because obviously it was a lot of time spent in training where you didn't have the best work-life balance. What's it like now? Well, uh, if it wasn't for COVID, I would live, literally be living my best life. Literally <laughs> be living my best life. <laughs> COVID messed up my, 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 the best laid plans. But before COVID, it was wonderful. I mean, I can travel when I want. Um, I take off when I want. I mean, as an attending, you can work as much as you want or as little as you want, um, depending on what you're set up, academic versus private practice. You know, in private practice, you eat what you kill. So a lot of people got to grind, grind, grind because they want to make that up financially. But it's it's what you make it. If what you want is a, a nice work-life balance, then you'll still, like, make a significant – you'll still live very comfortably, um, but you're just not going to be making millions. But you will have a nice life. But if what you seek out is, like, the – the financial gains that uh, being a neurosurgeon can provide, you can get that too. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's a great work-life balance is what you make it. And when it comes to practice models, because you did a spine fellowship, so that's probably what you want your practice to go into, I assume? Yeah, um, I would like my practice to be about 70 to 80 percent spine, but I still want to do cranial. That's why I became a neurosurgeon. So I still want to do cranial. I still like cranial trauma, so uh, possibly look to do um, somewhere where I can still take a trauma call because I, I still enjoy that. And how common is that for people? Because I know when before I met you, when I thought of neurosurgery, I just thought of like brain surgery, period. But for people in private practice or in academic practice, how often do they have kind of a subspecialty? And if so, what are those different types of subspecialties they can focus on? So that's actually a good question. So all neurosurgeons fine. If you are board-certified neurosurgeon, you can do fine. So the difference between orthopedic spine and neurosurgery spine is we do seven years of residency, and about 50% of that seven years is fine. Whereas wow. orthopedics, you do five-year residency, and about 10% of that residency is fine. So you, we know how every neurosurgeon can do fine, period. Whether you can do deformity fine, a complex fine, and uh, the type of fine tumors that I was doing in fellowship, 
no, not every neurosurgeon will be able to do that um, without a fellowship like the thickectomies and things like that. Um, but every neurosurgeon can do fine uh, and proficiently without a fellowship. Hmm. Um, but the complex spine, uh, you would do a fellowship. In academics, where I train, everything is subspecialized, and the spine surgeons really don't touch cranial unless it is trauma. So everybody is subspecialized in academics. In private practice, it's what you make it, but for the most part in private practice, a lot of what you'll do it will be fine or within your subspecialty um, but everybody is really subspecialized in, in neurosurgery. So you can either do a subspecialty of spine, you can do vascular neurosurgery, which, which includes endovascular and open, um, treating aneurysms and um, vessel malformations and treating strokes. Um, you can do pediatrics, um, and vascular and pediatrics, are the only two subspecialties within neurosurgery where you 100% have to do a fellowship in order um, to be board certified in those two subspecialties. Okay. Functional neurosurgery is a component where you treat pain and movement disorders. So people do fellowships in that, and that's treating like Parkinson's disease, like what I told you about, movement disorders, uh, hemi um facial spasms, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, and any sort of pain, chronic pain and, and pain related to cancer, a functional neurosurgeon can do that. You can specialize in tumor, and a lot of people do fellowships in tumor. And even within tumor, there's a subspecialization called skull-based neurosurgery, which deals with <laughs> taking out tumors that are intimately related to the brain stem, which is very, very difficult. I think that's about all the subspecialties. Wow. Yeah. I honestly had no idea. Oh, and you can do trauma and, and, and neural. You can do a, a subspecialization in trauma and trauma neurocritical care. Yeah. I had no idea all that was out there. I did work with a skull base neurosurgeon in residency and he definitely did some interesting stuff. Well, Dr. Simpson, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Doctors podcast. As we wrap up, what advice would you have to students that are considering going into one of these extremely challenging competitive specialties, what would you tell them? Well, I would tell them, um, don't ever let anyone tell you no. You know, there will always be bumps in the road. But if this is what God has for you and this is what you've been ordained to do, you know, keep going and just know that the road is going to be long and hard, but worth it in the end. Seek out mentorship early at your own institute um, or an institute that's close to whatever medical school you're at. Even if your program doesn't have a neurosurgery program, I would try and seek out one that's close by so that you can get a relationship with them so you can start publishing. There it is. Uh, let's leave on, on this note. What is the name of your favorite OR playlist? Well, <laughs> I have two go-tos, as you know. Bottom Service is my favorite go-to playlist. Um, you can already guess what type of music I play during Bottom Service. And then when I'm trying to chill, my next favorite playlist is called Black Girl Magic. And that's like all my R&B women on that playlist. So it goes out. And of course, I have my Beyonce playlist. 
<laughs> I'd expect uh, nothing less from Queen V in the operating room. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, Dr. Simpson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.